If you'll be turning in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10, Daniel chapter 10, we will continue to learn from Daniel about the faithfulness of God and how he is good to us. He is good to us, just like we just sung, despite the fact or even through the various difficult trials that we go through that he calls us to walk through. Sometimes for some of us, more often than not, and yet God is always with us and good for us. We'll see that from Daniel 10 especially. By way of introduction, um, I'll, I'll note that Daniel chapter 10 stands as a prelude to the final two chapters of the book, the final, the closing prophecy of the book. And it enables us to see more clearly God's gracious purpose in giving us a window into what he is doing in and through his people, what he's accomplishing in and through his people, despite the fact that it seems to them as though God has abandoned them, that he's forgotten, that he is far from them, and their life is crashing all around them. Um, It often seems like that for us, too. And yet, Daniel 10 helps us to see that that is so far from the case, that God is actually working in and through his people to accomplish his redemptive purposes, to glorify his name. We've seen over and over again in in the, the whole book of Daniel, really, haven't we, that the purpose of prophecy isn't so much to to give us a crystal clear idea of what the future will be like in all of its various particulars. Really, the purpose of prophecy is to convict and to comfort us with the fact of God's sovereignty, that he cares for us, that he's the author of the story from beginning to end. There were technical difficulties on Sunday which created a gap in the recording. Sorry for the inconvenience. You'll hear the remainder of the sermon now. It's so hazy, it's so ambiguous. Why doesn't God just tell us exactly what's going to happen? You know, why, why doesn't he just say, all right, it'll be you know, Antioch of Epiphanes that destroys the temple and, and just tell us straight up? Well, the reason he doesn't, well, I actually don't know the reason he doesn't, but one of the, the, the fruits of it is that we see more clearly God's sovereign purposes in the world, that he is there to comfort us and to fight for us, and to protect us in all the, the, the trials that we walk through. And so it's not so much to satisfy our curiosity, but to confirm for us, to prove to us God's faithfulness, prove for us his sovereignty, that he is the Lord of the universe, and that we serve a God, we worship a God who loves us and cares for us, despite the fact that we walk through some very difficult times every now and then. And as I said, for some of us, it's more often than not. So the closing chapters in Daniel are a little bit different, though, in in the fact that we, we have a prophecy that gives us some details that, in some respects, are a little bit more precise. And so it's really important that we cleave to what Daniel 10 has to teach us, lest we you know, rush into speculations about this or that aspect of prophecy or this or that supposed fulfillment and, and really miss the, the central theme of the book of Daniel, which is God's faithfulness in uncertain times. And, and, and if we miss that, then you know, we might be tempted to say, okay, well, this prophecy means this and that, and well, it's really interesting, but then we miss what God really wants to teach us. And it's wonderfully illustrated in this chapter. Um, you know, the fact that though we're often faced with fearful circumstances, we nonetheless serve a God who teaches us not to panic, not to, be, uh, not to, not to fear as though we have no hope. But, and he teaches us by the ways in which he demonstrates his faithful, sovereign control over everything. So in, in really like a, in a simple sentence, and in, in the key truth for this passage, I put it to you like this. God teaches his people to be strong and of good courage by the way he shows his care for us in his faithful, sovereign power. God teaches his people to be strong and of good courage by the way he shows his care for us in his faithful, sovereign power. So, see this from the text. We'll start in verse 1. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. 
In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies. No meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. We'll stop there for a minute. The first thing to note is that this prophecy comes to Daniel in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. And this means that it's during the time when Cyrus has allowed the Jewish people to return to Israel and to begin rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. And we read about this history in the book of Ezra. And the story as it's told for us in the book of Ezra is that almost as soon as this project gets off, the, really before this project can get off the ground, opposition rises up to the people, discourages them from building, local officials bribe other local officials to make them afraid to build, and it just seems like nothing much has really changed after all. I mean, imagine this. Here you have the people back in the land of Israel, back into the land that was promised by God to their fathers many generations ago. Here you have the opportunity almost to really begin building the temple again, the, the signifier that God is with his people. Here it must have seemed as though finally the proof that Israel was God's chosen people and, and God particularly favored them out of all the peoples of the, of the world would be demonstrated to the world again. And yet, almost before these hopes can get off the ground, opposition sets up. And it seems like nothing must have changed really after all. They're still really exiles. They're, just, they're in their own land. And I mention this because it's probably one of the reasons for Daniel's mourning that he mentions in these verses. We, we already saw from Daniel chapter 9 that the recognition of his people's sin and shame weighed heavily upon him. And now on top of this you have these early hopes that seem to be shattered by this, this wicked opposition to the people. And so what are we to do, what are God's people to do when circumstances are dark and life is troubled and all our hopes are dashed? Well, Daniel shows us that we have no other place to go to com for comfort than to God alone. I think it raises a question for us that would be good for us to ponder, and, and that is, what causes us to mourn? And where do we turn to when we are confused and defeated? You know, Daniel tells us that he didn't eat any delicacies, and, and this probably refers to bread made with fine flour, and he didn't eat any meat or wine, and he didn't anoint himself for three weeks, and he did all this, he tells us, because he mourned. So this is not some kind of vaguely um, ascetic practice. Uh, it wasn't designed to manipulate God into answering him. Rather, it was the, the outward mark of the inward state of his soul. You see, I think many of us probably find it pretty easy the fast. We just don't realize it. But anytime we are anxious about something or nervous about some task, like me this morning, <laughs> um, or overcome with grief, it's easy to put the desires of the body out of the mind. We hardly think about it because we're so anxious to have our troubles resolved. But how little do we carry the same grief when we sin against God? How, how little do we really mourn for the state of the lost in our midst? How little does the, the God-dishonoring trajectory of our country really bother us, our protests, you know, notwithstanding? Does the cause of God in the world really concern us? There's a kind of fearlessness that comes from indifference, and it's not the kind of fearlessness that God wants us to have, and it's not the kind of fearlessness that, that Daniel models. Um, we should be alive to the work of God in our midst. We should be alive to the word of God preached and eager to understand it. We should be um, anxious to see the work of God accomplished in our midst and distressed when it's opposed. We should be displeased with the sin that 
remains in our lives and anxious to see God's work of sanctification growing. And we should be anxious to lay hold of the means of grace that are given to us by God for our comfort. So the point in all this is that the more and more we are concerned with the cause of God in the world, the more and more regular periods of fasting and prayer will seem like a strange and burdensome thing to us. I think it often strikes us as, as burdensome or just kind of strange or it's hard for us to understand mainly because we don't feel uh, the weight of the opposition of the world to the cause of God in the world as strongly as we ought to do. But for Daniel, it's, it's no ascetic practice or, man, I just really need some answers from God, so I'll just do this, and maybe he'll be pleased by the fact that I'm not eating anything or anointing myself. I, he'll be pleased that I'm starving and I stink or, or something like that, and he'll, he'll, he'll be motivated to answer me. Well, it's not like that at all. Daniel's motivation is God's uh, glory. Daniel's motivation is the fact that the, the opposition his people experience in their own land weighs heavily upon him. And so the, the, I, would just, I would just encourage us, the more and more we look at periods of, of regular fasting and prayer as the response of the, uh, the, the outward mark of the inward state of our souls, the less and less it'll seem a strange thing to us. I, I appreciate the way that John Calvin puts it uh, like this. Hear what he says. He says, ordinary daily prayers do not require fasting. I'll just insert really quickly here. Remember that for Calvin, he's, he's kind of pushing back a little bit against um, some of the ascetic practices that were prevalent in the medieval Roman church in which it, it, fasting and, and prayer like this was sort of, um, you could say, uh, uh, designed to sort of say, okay, well, God will be pleased with the things that we do. God will be pleased with the withholding of, of good things, good things like food, and he'll be motivated to answer us. And so Calvin has to push back against that a little bit. He's saying, well, ordinary daily prayers don't require fasting. But he continues, but, this is crucial, but, when any great necessity presses upon us, that exercise is added by way of help to increase the alertness and fervor of our minds in the pouring forth of prayer. For this reason, the scriptures often connect fasting with sorrow. Daniel, therefore, did not abstain from all food and wine and luxuries with the view of rendering any obedience to God, but of testifying his own grief. Then he was anxious to rouse himself to prayer, and by that mark of humility, to prepare far better for repentance. So what Calvin is saying is that the connection between fasting and prayer and sorrow is that it enables us to see that God alone is our comfort, that God alone is the source of our strength and health and life. And so the, that's the connection that we need to make in our own minds, that the, the cause of God in the world is so important, and the cause of God in the world is, is intimately tied up with what our uh, innermost hopes are, are aimed towards. And so when it's opposed, it causes us to grieve. And when we grieve, we turn to God and we find in him the comfort that we need. We find in him the sovereign power that says, I control all things, and I'm working all things together for my good and the good of, your, of my people, you, the church. And so when we mourn this way, God is eager and quick to respond to us and show us that he loves us and comfort us in this, in this way. So turn again to the text. We'll pick up in verse 4. Daniel continues, On the twenty-fourth day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is, the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen, with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. 
And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. Stop there for a minute. It's important to remember that Daniel wasn't fasting in order to prepare himself for this vision. It wasn't as though he expected God to momentarily appear and stun the senses practically out of him. Rather, God responds to Daniel's confusion and mourning and condescends. He, He comes down to show him what will take place in the history of his people. Perhaps we read a passage like this and we are we are so overwhelmed by the description of this heavenly visitor that we forget we we miss the awe-inspiring fact that God responds to Daniel in such a way. I mean, haven't we seen again and again through the life of Daniel the proof that God watches over and cares for his people? I mean, just consider how faithful God is. Which of the false gods in the history of religion has ever responded to his people's confusion and fear in this way? Which of the idols that we have ever been tempted to serve, be they you know, money or, or work or reputation or various kinds of success, which of the idols that we have ever been tempted to serve can respond in such a way to our confusion and fear when life is dark and circumstances are heavy and there doesn't seem to be much hope? They can't respond in such a way and they, and they won't respond in such a way. And this, po- this leads us, I think, to ask ourselves very seriously, who or what do we fear? And what does that say about we, what, who, who or what we think is ultimately sovereign in this world? When we fear God and when we uh, trust in his sovereign control, then we are comforted by his love. We are comforted in the fact that he sovereignly controls everything. He created everything. And his purposes will prevail. And when we try to serve other gods, we always end up in confusion and fear and with no hope whatsoever. So God is faithful to us. God is loving to us in the way in which he responds to our confusion and fear. So, so who is this heavenly visitor that, that visits Daniel? Well, some, there, there are different interpretations. Some commentators think that this is a, a Christophany. It's a, a pre-incarnate manifestation of, of Jesus. Um, the description here in, in Daniel 10 is very close to the description we have of Jesus in, in Revelation 1. It, it's very striking, actually, how, how close it is. Um, other commentators, though, they think it's uh, simply one of the uh, angelic attendants that, that sit around God's throne. And in, in fact, the, the description that we have of, of certain of these angels in places like Ezekiel 1 it mirrors, in some respects, the description we have of this, of this heavenly visitor. Um, I, I would just encourage you, maybe spend some time this Sabbath day contemplating uh, the, the vision here we have of, of this heavenly visitor in Daniel 10, uh, the vision we have of Jesus in Revelation 1, and of some of his angels in Ezekiel 1, and consider what I think is the most pertinent point, um, whether we, we go with one commentator and think it's Jesus, which is 
my view, initially I thought maybe it might have been one of his angels, but considering more, I think it's probably a manifestation of Jesus, or whether we agree with other commentators and think it's an angel, but the main point is to show us something of the glory and might and power of God. So, in his distinguished clothing, in his barrel-like body, in his lightning-like face, in his flaming eyes, Daniel sees someone whose appearance is terrifying. It's terrifying. Don't miss this. So often we skim over Bible passages with, with lots of details like this, and we miss the picture that it's meant to provide us. But it's in passages like these that we're reminded that the Bible doesn't give us a rationalistic faith, merely just some nice ideas. It reveals a God who is holy and present and a consuming fire. The men who are with Daniel don't see the vision and yet are filled with fear and have to run and hide themselves. It's kind of reminiscent of the Apostle Paul's experience on the Damascus Road when he met the risen Christ. And his companions heard the, the, heard the risen Lord speaking, but didn't see him. And, and, and like Paul himself, in this case, Daniel is so overcome with what he sees that he practically faints. So the first thing to see from this description of this heavenly messenger and from Daniel's response is that God is a fearful being to sinners like us. And unless he condescends, unless he comes down to comfort us and to teach us not to fear by his grace, every meeting of him in his full glory would leave us utterly beyond recovering. We don't often reflect upon the glory of God because we're so inclined to think of it abstractly, I think. Um, but, but there's no abstraction here. So let us have in our day a better conception of God's glorious, stunning transcendence that is, his, his distinctness, his distantness, so that his imminence, his real imminence, his, his nearness to us in our union with Christ, applied by the Holy Spirit, may be more amazing and sweet to us. One of the ways in which we can, we can just miss or, or, or overlook the, the gloriousness of the gospel for us is that we don't pay much heed to um, the gloriousness of God, how fearful it is if we were to meet him in our sin, in all of his glory how we would be utterly destroyed. And, and yet, we know that this is the case, and for Daniel, the, the comfort that he receives is because of the love that God has for him. And the love that God has for us is revealed to us in the gospel. So, when we stand before a fearful God, everything depends upon whether or not we are loved by him. And the only way to have the assurance that God loves us is to come to Jesus in faith, to lay aside our pride, and call upon him alone for salvation. I think it's been so helpful. Cameron has reminded us again and again what the antithesis to faith is. It's not doubt, it's pride. And that's helpful because it's so true. We, we see it clearly here that, it, that the antithesis to faith for Daniel isn't, um, man, I don't know if, if uh, God is really here. I don't really know if, 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 if God can really work in the life of my people. I don't really know what's going on. The antithesis for faith, uh, of faith for Daniel is the pride that he could manage it all in his own strength, or the pride that the people of Israel could somehow get their act together and, and, and once again you know, merit God's attention, merit God's favor. And yet here we see that the only hope we have is in our humility through grace as applied to us by the Holy Spirit. And God does that for us in the Gospel. So how would we know that we are loved by God? By believing the promise. Paul puts it like this. It's a verse we're all familiar with. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And when we turn to this promise in faith and believe it by faith alone, uh, through grace alone, in Christ alone, 
the more and more we begin to find that the promises of this world, the distractions of this world, the trials of, the, of this world, lose their hold on us, hold on us. And, and the, the promises of this world lose their, their grip and their luster. And our desire for heavenly things grows. So the terror of God in his majesty must lead us to find our hope in the gospel. You know, the gospel is not hard to find in the Old Testament. We've just got to know who we are. You know, we, 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 we get so confused because oftentimes we're so tempted to make ourselves the hero of the story. But we've got to realize that we're not. You know, we're not faithful Abraham leaving Ur at the call of God. We're not uh, a prophetic Moses speaking truth to power in the Egyptian court. We're not courageous David slaying giant Goliath. We're not uh, faithful, pious Daniel continuing to pray despite the threat of the lion's den. If anything, we're lying Abraham in Egypt, afraid the Pharaoh is going to kill us and steal our wife. Uh, wife. We're, um, we're, we're cowering Moses by the burning bush, afraid and intimidated by the Egyptian court. We're murderous David, the um, adulterer, trying to cover up and, and hide our sin. And, and even at the best of times, we're, we're trembling Daniel, knocked out cold at the mere thought of the holiness of God. But, but the good news is that Jesus is the hero of the story. He is the more faithful, the more, uh, the more faithful, the, the better Abraham. He is the more faithful um, and, and courageous and prophetic Moses. He is the more faithful and courageous David. He, he is the more faithful and prayerful Daniel. So the lesson we must learn from men like Daniel and, and others in the Old Testament is not some moralistic lesson like, you know, be like them or... You know, sometimes you hear like, well, you're Daniel or you're David, so, you know, if, if you have a giant in your life, God wants you to slay him and, and all, everything's going to be good. Or, you know, the Sauls in the world, they're, they're out there to steal your thunder. You know, you just got to resist them. That, that draws our attention back onto ourselves. And the thing we really must learn from men like uh, Daniel especially is that we must look to Christ alone for our hope and help and comfort. So do we wish to stand before God? Let us stand in the hope of the gospel. Stand up, Daniel. Be strong and of good courage. That's what God says to him. Stand up, Christ Community Church. Be strong and of good courage. That's what God says to us in the gospel. And we have seen that God gives us courage by the display of his terrifying glory. I use that word deliberately, terrifying glory. And there's a tension here, maybe. because we We're not often disposed to think of God as terrifying, and I don't think we ought to do, because God comforts us in the gospel, but that's the, that's the connection we must make, that God in his holiness is terrifying. He is a, a fearful being. It's a fearful thing, Hebrews tells us, to fall into the hands of, of the living God. And so the comfort that we have in the face of God, the reason that we can stand before God, comes through no other way but our union with Christ through the gospel. And we must lay hold of this. We must believe it. God teaches us not to fear because he is glorious and mighty. He is a safe harbor from all the terrors of the world, from all the confusion of the world, because he is more terrifying than they. And he can control all things. And he stands as a rock against all the designs and schemes of the enemy. So seeing this, let, us, let our courage have its full effect, that we will press on in obedience despite every fear, no matter the opposition or the darkness of our circumstances. For this is the fruit of true Christian courage. It's not that we will, face circumstance, we will never face any circumstances ever again in which we could conceivably fear. It's not that fear... Um, is somehow some now in Christ some irrational response to events. 
No, that's not it at all. It's that we run to Christ for our comfort and courage, and we lean on him in his sovereignty to set the story straight, to restore all things to himself, and that's where our hope is found. So when we are fearful, we must turn to Christ, and we do that through the gospel. I think Brian Chappell says this very well in this quote here. He says, When God appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he said, Fear not. When God revealed his glory to the prophets, he said, Fear not. When messengers announced Jesus' birth to his family and to the shepherds in their fields, they said, Fear not. When the glory of God is so great that it might obscure the love of God, uh, the love God has for his people, he always assures them that they need not fear harm from him. The circumstances into which he comes may be frightening, and his own nature requires our awe. But he comes to overcome our fears with the promise of his care. So, turn again to the text. We'll pick up in verse 13. The Lord says to Daniel, The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There, there is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So with this passage, God, as it were, pulls back the curtain of history to show Daniel what has been going on behind the scenes even from the moment he began to pray and fast. Though from Daniel's perspective it has taken God 21 days to hear and answer him, in reality his prayers were heard from the very start, but he was delayed from in coming to Daniel by the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Who, who is this? Well, it seems it's another kind of angelic being, one powerful enough to delay God's messenger. And I think we should probably understand it as a demonic agent of Satan who seems to have some kind of uh, influence or control over the Persian Empire. So without knowing it, Daniel has been playing a part through his praying in the ultimate struggle, struggle between righteousness and evil. This opposition is... So that means the opposition of, his, of the Jewish people in Israel is no mere matter of a difference of opinion or no mere matter of some policy preference in the Persian court. Ultimately, it's a matter of the enmity of Satan to the purposes of God. And it is against this that Daniel's messenger has been fighting and continues to fight alongside another angel called Michael, uh, one who seems to have um, a, a similar though righteous influence over God's people. So what is the point in all of this? I think it's this. Life is a battleground, but your enemy is not your unbelieving neighbor. It's not the LGBTQ movement. It's not Trump or Clinton. It's not even ISIS. 
The enemy is more threatening than that, but ultimately impotent in the face of God's power. He's the deceiver, the father of lies, Satan and his demonic agents. Has this become a shocking thing to say in our day? I think maybe it has. Our, sometimes I think we, we just get too intellectual for all this, and so it seems that we, we miss out on, on certain things like this. We're just not willing to hear it. But I think we must realize, that we, must, we must resist the, the tendency to think of the underlying spiritual battle in this world as mainly a matter of ideas. I mean, consider what Paul tells us in Ephesians. He says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And don't let this rattle us too much. Let's not become mystics of a certain kind and, and so concerned with uh, what we don't see and, and hear um, that we neglect to be faithful in what God has given to us. Because we must be faithful to what we see and know. And we do not usually see anything more but the effects of the spiritual war between God's kingdom and the kingdom of darkness. But we are called, nonetheless, to participate in the battle by our obedience to Jesus. This means that howsoever severe it may be, the opposition of unbelievers, be they co-workers or even presidents, is but the byproduct of their deception in their own idolatry. And in this, too, we once walked, and God saved us. And so he may save them as he saved us. And so we are called to persevere in prayer and love. So direct your enmity, therefore, to the works of Satan. Hate what he is about, as God does. Put to death the work of sin, sin still in you. Put on the righteousness of Christ. Find safety in Christ alone. And pray, and pray. See what the Lord says to Daniel in verse 21 but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. So God comforts Daniel by showing him what is inscribed in his providential plan for history. God is not for a moment undone by the opposition of the world to his people. He is not for a moment undone by the persecution of his church. He is working through it to accomplish his redemptive purposes. He is more terrifying than the worst terrors the world could possibly conjure up. He is more powerful than the mightiest kings or demons. It is an amazing thing, therefore, that such a mighty one as our God is would work in answer to our prayer, as he does for Daniel. So let us be constant in prayer for God to work in our day. Let us not merely complain about this election season or the godless culture or the conflicts in our relationships. Let us not be surprised by opposition let us realize that there is a spiritual war going on, though we do, not, we do not see it. Let us remember that the victory is already God's. And let us press on so that others may share in that victory through Christ. Let us oppose the devil and all his works through constant prayer. I'd ask you this. Has God ever begun to answer a prayer before you realized it? And how did, how did this demonstrate his love and care for you? God is always doing a thousand things behind the scenes that we are not aware of. And, and imagine for Daniel, it must have seemed, man, I've been praying for 21 days and, and God doesn't seem to be answering me. And many of us have gone through the same period. It's not just three weeks, but it's years, months, weeks even, in which God's silence strikes us as, as very disconnected with all of the things that he tells us about his love for us. 
And so we must be persevering in prayer because of the fact that God reveals that he is always working a thousand things behind the scenes that we're not aware of. That there is a great opposition to us in the world. Satan hates us. He hates the fact that you are gathered together this morning to worship the living God. He hates the fact that you are hearing from his word and being comforted by the promise of the gospel and being motivated to worship God and become better disciples and stirred up to make disciples in the world. He hates that. He wishes to see God's people in misery for eternity and dead. And this is a very sombering thing. And so we must persevere in prayer despite the fact that oftentimes it doesn't seem that God is with us for the moment, knowing that God works for us, that he is fighting for us. And it's an amazing thing that this, uh, the, the Lord would tell Daniel that no one fights by my side except Michael, your prince. That's a confusing thing to me, but I think the, the import of it is that the, this opposition to, to God's people is, is nothing to God. All he needs is maybe some backup with Michael. You know, it's not an overpowering thing for God. God is so powerful that the opposition of, of all the world to his people is his nothing. And so he comforts Daniel not even in his, not just in his response to his prayer and his, his, his comfort by his love and, and all the promises that he is for us, but in the fact that he is so powerful and mighty that it only takes him and another angel to completely overrule the designs of this evil Persian demonic agent and the most powerful nation at that time in the history of the world. And that is a comforting thing. Hear what Samuel Chadwick has to say about prayer. I, this is a common quote. Samuel Chadwick was a, a minister from about a century ago, and this quote goes around every now and then, but I think it's true, and I think it's, it's very convicting. He says this, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. Activities are multiplied that prayer may be ousted, and organizations are increased that prayer may have no chance. The one concern of the devil is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. But trembles when we pray. The reason the devil trembles when we pray is because we ask God, who alone can defeat him, to help us. If, if we try to, to work in our own strength, if we try to set our culture right in our own strength, if we try to merit God's attention or favor in our own strength, we're easy marks. We're fish in a barrel for the temptations of Satan, for the opposition of Satan. But if we lean on God's strength, if we lean on God's sovereignty, if we find our hope in him through the gospel, then he is able to comfort us, and he is able to work in and through us to accomplish his redemptive purposes. So what do we see from Daniel 10? We see, first of all, that we cannot stand before God unless we are loved by him. We cannot stand before God unless we are loved by him. If we wish to stand before God, in righteousness, that we wish to stand before God in the hope that he is for us. We must uh, pursue him in the hope of the gospel. We also see that God's love for us and sovereign power enable us to be strong and of good courage despite fearful circumstances. Not to say that we will never be plunged into uh, uh, seasons of opposition. Not to say that we will never experience things which ought to, uh, which legitimately would inspire fear in us but that we must run to God. And when we do so, he enables us to be strong, to stand before him, to stand before the opposition of the world in good courage, because he is for us. And this mighty one, the Holy One of Israel, fights for us. And finally, we should persevere in prayer, knowing that God works and fights for us in ways we do not always perceive. 
We do not always see what God is doing behind the scenes. Most of the time we don't see what God's doing behind the scenes, even in our own sanctification, even in the various trials that may not seem like a very good thing to our neighbors, but uh, are a very great thing to our neighbors, but are severely taxing on ourselves. Even in those moments, God is working for us. God is working to undo the opposition of the world. He's working to defeat the aims of this evil one, Satan. He's working to work in and through the opposition of the world to his truth, to redeem his people, to call even the ones who stand against him to repentance. That's an amazing thing. And may we be participating in that through prayer. May we persevere. May we persevere in prayer. May we not go tired or discouraged or distressed. Despite whatever the world may throw up against us, despite our own sin, despite the seasons of discouragement, may we persevere in prayer knowing that God works for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the hope that we have in you and through you and for the gospel. We thank you that we can stand before you, not because of anything in ourselves, not because we are great or strong or can especially commend ourselves to you, but because you are loving. We pray that we would recognize this fact and lean always on you. We would run to the gospel in humility and not try to stand in our own pride and strength. May we persevere in prayer. Thank you, Lord, that you fight for us. May we see more clearly what you are doing in the world to restore all things to yourself. May that cause us to be affected so that when the opposition of the world sets up uh, against us, that we are truly moved and from the heart and not indifferent to what you are accomplishing in the world, but run to you so so that we may be comforted by you. May we persevere in prayer, Lord. May we lay hold of the means of grace, such as in your table, that we, may we, that we may be comforted by you, and that we may persevere in sanctification. Help us to be a praying people, that your purposes and your redemptive aims for the world may be accomplished for us, until at last we may worship you in purity and peace in your kingdom forever. In Jesus' name, amen.